I always do puppets, some type of puppet making like the second day of camp. And you make the puppets and then they're addicted to them for the rest of the week and do hilarious things all week long. And so um, so one of the things that evolved in one of them was, you know, one, one kid was like, let's have a restaurant. Let's have a little restaurant scene. You know, let's do this. And this was at like their lunch break, you know, inspired. They're, like They're sitting with all their puppets eating lunch. And he's like, let's have a let's have a restaurant scene. And they all just kind of morphed into this restaurant scene. They all had a role. You know, a couple kind of leaders, like directors, sort of made themselves known, and everybody accepted that and was like, all right, that's cool, you know. And and then the next thing you know, they open up a chain of restaurants. They had subsidiary restaurants, um, like little mini satellite pop-up stands, and then they started creating their own money. So they developed a whole money system and they were passing out certain, you know, same amount of money to everybody. Here's how this works, you know, blah, blah, blah. And by the end of the week, you had this whole corporate, you know, this corporate nation of, of food options. And they all weighed in on what types of food and what kinds of restaurants and, you know, all the puppets had a role. <laughs> and you don't get to do that in a lot of other spaces. You don't often get to do it at school. And a lot of times you're not getting to do that at home because you don't have 12 kids at your house every day, unless your parents are really amazing. Um, you know, and it's just kind of that unique experience that I love trying to encourage and trying to kickstart and trying to fire up and move it along without giving them the structure and really having them kind of stew in the structure and then create their own. Because I don't want to know what they're going to come up with, you know, like whether it's their artwork or an idea like that. Like I always try to go into it thinking I'm just starting this party. I don't want to know what your art's going to look like in the end. If I do, that's messed up. Then it's my art. It's not your art. That free environment to create and just explore is such a luxury. I, I love that. So that's something that I really like about PMAC and makes me feel really good about what we do here. I think the music is the similar, you know, the music ensemble camps that we're kind of working alongside, you see it there too, and it's just a really good, a good vibe. Anna Nuttall, and I teach a lot of the after-school um, classes here at PMAC, drawing, painting, sculpture, printmaking, and then I teach at Portsmouth Middle School as well. And in the summers, I do PMAC, and then I also do some other programs. I work with Arts and Reach, which works with teenage girls. And then I also work with Ava um, Gallery up in Lebanon and do a Dartmouth partnership with them. Um, so I'm all over the place. <laughs> and that was Anna Nuttall, visual arts instructor at the Portsmouth Music and Arts Center talking about one of her experiences at a PMAC summer camp. Anna was our very first visual arts instructor at PMAC and founded the visual arts program way back in 2006. My name is Russ Grazier. I'm executive director of the Portsmouth Music and Arts Center, and I'd like to welcome you to our first episode of Sound in Color, the PMAC podcast. We have an interesting conversation to share with you today. Local photographer David Murray visited us recently, and we talked a lot about his early career uh, as a musician and as a computer programmer and how that eventually evolved into becoming a photographer. He's best known in the Seacoast as the live performance photographer in-house at the Music Hall and uh, is also fairly known for his drone photography. So welcome to the very first episode of Sound and Color, and we hope you enjoy this. It sounds to me like a drop of water, like a, um, a, dr a, a water drip that's been processed somehow. So I have no idea when we're going to edit in on this conversation. So if we include that, we're talking about how you turn the volume up and down on a Mac computer and that little pl computer plop sound. <laughs> well, you know, I think whether that's an appealing sound for you or uh, an off-putting sound depends a lot on your background. Yeah, probably. I think it all depends on what has been done to you. So today with us on the PMAC Podcast, we have David Murray, and we're going to find out how that sound impacts his life. So, so with your background, 
because your background is in technology as well, not just music and visual arts, but you have a technology background. So um, do you cringe when you hear the volume change on a Mac computer or? Well, you know, that that's a sound from my youth, actually. Mm-hmm. Or, or I shouldn't say my youth because I'm actually pretty old. <laughs> but back in 1983, so how old was I in 1983? I was, I was a freshman in high school, so we'll put that in context. Yeah, I was, I was in my 30s. Mm-hmm. So I was, you know, older. And, and you may recall the Macintosh was first released in 1984. Correct, yeah. But I actually got a Macintosh in 1983. Really? I got one from Steve Jobs, and I was an early developer. Wow. So I've been hearing those squishy sounds. and Wow. The, the one that really sort of entered my consciousness and is still there, there was a sound. I don't know if you remember what a floppy disk is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because many people listening to this probably won't. It used to take seven or ten floppy disks to put all my parts for one score from a piece of music and finale into, you know, to save them. I'd have them on multiple floppies. Yeah, so the the original Mac used a a smaller floppy disk than had been used before, and it was kind of a square thing. Mm -hmm. And when it's... When it ejected, which it did under software control, it made this sort of sound like the computer was making fun of you. You know, it was a little bit, there was sort of something about it that was a little obnoxious. And and it looked a lot like a tongue sticking out mm-hmm. as it yep. made that noise. Oh, yeah, because because the entrance was sort of like the smirking mouth of the Mac, right? Yeah, yeah. So it would go, and it would come out. And, yep. and I and I actually made up some um, floppy disk labels, mm-hmm. and now I'm really dating myself. Yep, that had a picture of a tongue <laughs> on them. That's awesome. Uh, which I thought I'd get rich selling. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, didn't happen. Didn't happen. I, you know that was before eBay, though. I think if if and, and Facebook and YouTube, and I think if I'd oh, made yeah. a YouTube video yeah. of, of this happening back then. It might have gone viral. I envision a million-dollar Kickstarter campaign for the tongue labels on the floppy disks if Kickstarter had existed at that time. Yeah, yeah. So this is one more example of how timing is important. Yes. Because I think our timing Timing. is off here. Timing's everything. Um, Yeah, so it would have been good. So so this podcast (laughs) endeavor, having conversations with local artists, is a new thing for PMAC. And you bring to the podcast a unique set of life experiences that draw from music, which is a big part of PMAC, and visual arts, which is a big part of PMAC, and technology, which is a big part of podcasting. Um, So tell our listeners a little bit about your personal path, where you started and how you got to where you are today. And let's see if we can do it in three minutes or less. (laughs) How's that for a request? Okay, okay. And you'll... Do the chipmunk thing where you speed it up and oh yeah yeah we'll put some entertaining uh, this American Life music underneath you as you speak or something yeah and I'll I'll try to do the Alvin thing so you know really quickly I was in high school I got involved in music got very excited about music and ended up going to college as a music major and gravitated from playing music you know thinking I was going to be a a performer Mm -hmm. Uh, and you have to be really good to be a performer and I just was I was okay you know nobody kicked me off the stage but I knew I wasn't going to be a star and your Uh, instrument was uh, primarily flute flute yeah Yeah, I played all the woodwinds Mm -hmm. um, and some piano and but I I I ended up as a composition major music theory composition doing doctoral work at the University of Illinois Mm -hmm. in an environment where there were computers the yep. University of Illinois back then was a real pioneer in in, um, in computing in general. You may remember when um, in 2001 uh, they're shutting down HAL because HAL has gone rogue. Yes. I am dating myself again. Yeah. But, Not but the year 2001, but the movie 2001. The movie, the movie yes. 2001, there's a scene, you know, so HAL basically is the computer that controls the whole mm-hmm. spaceship and HAL decides that Dave, one of the stars, is expendable, yes. mm-hmm. uh, subordinate to the mission. Yes. So, so Dave decides to shut down Hal, and Hal does this whole regression thing when he goes back to being younger and younger, and mm-hmm. and then there's a little thing that he says where he says, you know, good good afternoon, gentlemen. My name is Hal, and I was developed by some doctor. Yep. At the University of Illinois, so that's yes. sort of how central Illinois yes. was yeah. to that early 
world. Well, so if you were there, it was kind of in the water. Uh-huh. And, and I was doing microtonal composition, music composition, composition Who music. were you studying with when you were doing Ben that? Johnston. Oh, who wow. Who's yeah. like the pioneer of microtonal. Ben, ben was the man. And yeah. ben, ben had played with Harry Parch and yeah. studied with Harry Parch and John Cage and also uh, Messian. Yes. So, uh, you know, in, in this sort of, um, I'm just like, two degrees of separation from somebody who's really famous. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, that's, I mean, in microtonal composition lineage, you can't get much better than Ben Johnson as your teacher. Ben was the man. And and Ben was also, you know, just a dear, dear person and a wonderfully... What's what's the right word? Um, Affirming Mm -hmm. person and and brilliant. Yes. So I, I loved studying with Ben. Uh, it, but, but, you know, one of the challenges of doing microtonal music is getting instruments that are designed to play standard tunings to play other tunings yes. instead. Not a problem with a computer. Yes, that's right. Right. But back then, the big problem was getting a computer to play music at all. Yes. But, but you know, there it was. It was a tool. I was struggling with uh, trying to develop tunings mm-hmm. and know what what they really sounded like and make music with them and a computer was a perfect tool Mm -hmm. so i got some help from some people who were interested in computer music over in the computer science department and ended up minoring in computer science yes so you know fast forward my wife and i finish our and my by the way Mm -hmm. my wife um uh, kate was also a music major, so we were both headed towards being college music teachers as our I sort think of I our that. day job. Now, is keyboard her primary instrument? Piano, uh, French horn. French. Oh, that, French I horn. did know that. She yes. Yeah, Kate was a wonderful horn player, and I use the word "was" only because she insists that you can't uh, be a good horn player <laughs> unless you keep it up, keep playing actively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because your lip kind of. That's yeah. one of those challenging instruments that you got to play daily and or. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, it. I can pick up a flute after three months, uh-huh. and you know, I'm not great, but I can play for a little while, and yep. then my lip dies. But yep. but with horn, it's really tough right away. I guess she tells me so. It's a very demanding instrument. Yeah. So she was a very fine horn player, mm-hmm. and uh, but but she she majored in the psychology of music and music education, and mm-hmm. and so when we. F- we finished our work at Illinois. We ended up out in Southern California, both teaching music at the college level. Oh, okay. Which sounds really cool, except for the fact that the pay is really poor. It's horrible. Yeah. yeah, and the cost of living out there was really high. Yeah. And I had minored in computer science. And you find yourself close to Silicon Valley and all of that that's going on out there. Well, this was actually Southern California. Farther south. Farther so south, it was okay. more the aerospace industry. Yep. And my very first job was working for a contracting company that had uh, a contract with JPL. Okay. Uh, and so even though I had a music background, mm-hmm. they were doing image processing. And this is how we are eventually going to get to photography. This is amazing. I love this story. Yeah, I mean it's you know it's it's a part of part of my um my path as you as mm-hmm. you described yeah. it it was a uh, you know sort of a a, a strong curiosity mm-hmm. just a, and a willingness to walk through doors that open. Yeah. Uh, without saying, oh, well, that's not part of the plan. Mm-hmm. It's more like, wow, that's really cool. Yep. So I got offered this job to work with some people who were real experts in image processing on some really interesting computer science projects. And uh, they had a contract with JPL to send image processing software into space wow. on um, deep space probes. So... So that, is, that some the, of, is some of your work floating out it in the is, outer? It's it's out it's out there somewhere. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So um so the, you know, I ended up with a thirty year career in computer science. Mm-hmm. And uh, after um eight years in Southern California moved up to um Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, met some very smart people, ended up starting a company with them and taking it public and what a revolutionary Continue. time period to be involved oh, in that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I knew Steve Jobs. I mm-hmm. knew Bill Gates. I knew Bill Joy, who was uh, the the guy who basically made Unix unique. Mm-hmm. Uh, Unix came out of AT&T, but it was – Bill Joy was one of the founders of Sun Microsystems mm-hmm. and the Sun workstations, you know, yep. really uh, – 
became the platform that, that engineers used uh, for uh, Unix-based uh, computing. Mm-hmm. Uh, knew lots and lots of people. Uh, and just and just because it was a much smaller world back then, um, and um, how does the world of those types of personalities, the leaders in Silicon Valley during that time, compare to the world of the compositional leaders that you came in contact with, like Ben Johnson? Because I assume that, like the world of academia and composition, it's a similarly sized and small group of thinkers that that have their own schools of thought and things like that. Have you ever thought about that as a comparison? Well, yes, I have. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I would say that uh, there was back then in Silicon Valley an amazing degree of um, uh, cooperation mm-hmm. and, and a sense that we were all changing the world yep. and making it a better place. And, sh- and people were... You know, there was there was a sense of competition, but it was all mm-hmm. very friendly, and there was also a sense of helping. Mm-hmm. You know, when I when when uh, we started Frame Technology back in '86, four of us, uh, and I had been a hiring manager at larger companies before with a, a track record of hiring maybe sixty or seventy percent good hires and maybe thirty or forty percent people who maybe I shouldn't have hired. Uh-huh. And that's a very expensive mistake. <laughs> I believe it. And and so now we were trying to build a company where it was our money, and mm-hmm. we were in, had to be very careful, or we'd run yeah. out of money and go out of business. So we couldn't afford that kind of, of failure. Mm-hmm. So I called Bill Gates. Uh huh. And Microsoft was small enough, and I had Bill. Bill knew me because I'd won some awards designing uh-huh. software, and so he, I'd met him in that context. And we had talked briefly about me working there, but I really wasn't interested in it at the time. Uh, so, but I could call Bill, and, yeah. he'd, and he'd take my call. Uh-huh. A- and I said to Bill, you know, how do you hire people? How do you not have such a poor uh, hiring rate, and how do you get up to a higher percentage? And and he explained to me the process that they used at Microsoft, which I immediately, uh, you know, sort of took what I liked and, and embellished on mm-hmm. it and changed it and then used that um, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, to think that, that I could just do that at that yeah, time. Yeah, with that and, type of support. Yeah, with that kind of support. And, and then, you know, when we were writing software for Sun Microsystems Computers and we ran into some issues, mm-hmm. you know, I just had access to all the smartest people at Sun Microsystems. So that's so wonderful to hear because in, in media portrayals of that era, they seem to want to draw out these head-butting stories of – Jobs and Gates at odds with each other, and and the the race to be first and all that type of stuff, which I'm sure was there at a certain level. And they're two very unique personalities that probably uh, rise above a lot of these other stories. But um, it's it's refreshing to hear this other side of being a part of all of that and feeling like you're part of a community even when you're not at the same developer. Yeah, you know, if you remember in the very early days of, of the Mac. Uh, Microsoft was right on at the table uh, mm-hmm. developing software for the Mac. Uh, yeah. It wasn't until Microsoft basically stole a bunch of stuff from Apple in, in coming up with Windows 3.0 yep. Yep. That, um, that there really became some enmity there. But, but Steve Jobs was, you know, clearly the kind the personality that's depicted in the popular culture about him being mm-hmm. uh, very difficult is based on truth yeah yeah yes he he said some very unkind things to me at, uh-huh. at times when yep. he was you know, I've read the biography yeah. the famous biography that came out right after he passed away yeah and and you do get that sense that strong sense that's a very well documented personality yeah yeah you know he, he was brilliant and uh amazingly hardworking and there was this thing called the reality distortion field mm-hmm. yep. just circled around him and yep. when you were with him you could believe anything that yep. he wanted you to believe mm-hmm. and it was difficult to uh, to disagree with him mm-hmm. and when you disagreed with him his normal technique was to shred you uh-huh. and then he would call you later 
and say, you know, I've been thinking about what you said, and maybe that might make some sense. Mm -hmm. And then he was a wonderful collaborator, too. Uh -huh. So, you know, the he was so good that you could forgive him uh -huh. yeah. uh, for, for, for his uh, difficulty. There are endless stories like that in the music world about music teachers at the highest levels of conservatories that, um, you know, even this movie that came out a couple years ago, Whiplash, uh -huh. where the actor won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for playing the super demanding conservatory jazz band leader that throws chairs during rehearsal at his students and things like that. Um, this, this type of what sometimes is described in popular culture as artistic temperament, yeah. you know, um, it's it's a f interesting parallel that you see in in Jobs' personality with the way that they would describe that type of personality at the highest level of conservatory instruction, which is something that I frankly I think for the better is starting to evolve into something different. It still exists in places, but I think that teachers are learning that being a, a support system for your students um, is the way to go, and that. Um, going through process with people and showing them how you do things uh, and and helping them learn from their mistakes and helping them identify where things go awry and how to adjust is maybe a better approach than lambasting someone every time they make a misstep. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I th I think you uh, you need a, a teacher to have standards and, yes. and to. Um, inspire you to, um, to to be the best you can. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but uh, you also need to allow people to grow and you need uh, your students to feel safe. Yeah. Well, that's something that we've built the whole philosophy here at the school at PMAC about is providing a safe environment for the students to explore their creativity and become the you know their personal creative best that they can do here and and it's a school-wide health philosophy and the teachers here are very carefully vetted and understood to bring that to the classroom and because of that it's been an incredibly positive experience for both the teachers and the students here that there's that type of culture and environment that encourages creativity and and really um, encourages positivity and not this um, the, this demeaning negativity that we sometimes see portrayed in films like Whiplash that just doesn't exist here. Um, but is, it, is this actually the secret to PMAX incredible success? <laughs> this is uh, this is it, ladies and gentlemen. It could be. It could be. Yeah, we don't scare people away. Maybe that's uh, that people actually want to come back for their second lesson because the teachers um, are actually supportive. I mean, they do have standards and they do want you to do your best. You can do. Um, and, and actually, we're welcoming you as a guest faculty member this spring to teach a, um, a photography class. And I'm so excited about we're that. We're really excited to have you here for this photography class. And, and maybe some of your prospective students are listening to this because we're going to get this one out uh -oh. and, and in people's headphones before the class launches. Um, but let's, let's, talk, let's, let's get towards that. So let's talk about your transition from imaging in uh, digital media and, and working as a programmer and software developer to how you found your way to photography, which is how I think of you, how I met you is as a photographer. Although we've played together as musicians and I know you well as a musician. And if people who are listening are thinking, oh, this sounds like a different type of interview, David and I know each other fairly well and have gotten to be friends over the years. Um, so that's, that's a difference for me to be able to interview someone who I've had many conversations like this over the years already. Yeah, I you hope know. I'm not violating the, no. the form. No, it's it's wonderful. The but, form. you know, my question, is, it'll probably end up being a slightly longer interview, but a very interesting interview. Um, and the, the question is, how did you get from where you were doing the technology work into uh, photography, which embraces technology as well, the way you approach it. Yeah, yeah, and and actually, I will answer that. But I, I just there's something that you reminded me of mm -hmm. as as we were getting here, which is, you know, back to the uh, this your your approach to teaching and mm -hmm. how happy I am that I'm going to have an opportunity to teach again because I haven't taught for a long time in in any structure. And when I made the transition from being a college music professor to being mm -hmm. a computer programmer, uh, I didn't mind the new salary. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and, I, and I loved the work. Yep. But I really missed the teaching. 
uh-huh. because teaching has always uh, been something that I've really enjoyed. I just you know love working with people and helping them to to grow and to and to you know find out what they need and and figure out uh, you know how I might help them understand something that they don't currently understand and mm-hmm. that they that they should understand in order to get over whatever barrier they're trying to get over now. So so that that activity is something that that for me is very very gratifying and really enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And it's something I've missed. So it's been and I, I've tried to use it as a manager you know, uh-huh. in business yeah. and as a mentor. Oh, those teaching skills carry over to so many other areas of yeah. life. Yeah. Yeah. But to actually have this chance to think yeah. about, oh, oh, teaching photography. Well, we're That's, thrilled to have you here for this. So, so, so I'm thank very you. Excited. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm so I'm very excited about it, too. But, you know, the, the path, uh, as I said, I, I ended up with my specialty in, in computer science being uh, built around image processing, publishing, and then a few other things that really don't matter for this this context but when I retired from from working in Silicon Valley in 2008 I was an avid photographer at that time Mm -hmm. just an avid amateur photographer and I'd been lucky enough to do a lot of traveling and uh, do a lot of travel photography and we would my wife and I would come back from these trips and we'd tell people about the trips and they'd say oh do you have pictures and Mm -hmm. You know, normally showing people your travel photos is the height of the wrong thing to That's do. That's the old right? joke, you know. Yeah, yeah. Come on over what, for dinner, and then we'll sit down and look at our vacation. Yeah, oh, yeah. what have we done to deserve this, yes. you know, right? So, you know, I would, people would ask to show see some pictures, and I'd show a few pictures and, you know, try to stop showing pictures because I really didn't want to be a bore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people would say, no, 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 show me more. These are like National Geographic. And uh-huh. I, you know, I, I got enough uh, positive feedback about that that I started to think, well, you know, maybe people do want to sh- see my pictures. Uh-huh. And then, then what happened, I think uh, there was actually a project at the music hall that uh, they, were, they were looking for... Uh, uh, images to use in the new loft yes. that they were planning. Yes. And uh, they were looking for someone who would come in and gather those images in the year before the loft was built. And uh, I was lucky enough to get that gig, basically. Uh-huh. Uh, and from there, that I ended up being the the primary staff photographer for the music hall, the house photographer for the music hall since 2009. Uh, so one of those early photo shoots that you did that became one of the panels on the walls in the loft was a PMAC interaction. Uh, I'm wondering how early that was in your experience with the loft. It was when the, um, I, I want to say it was the Monterey Jazz Festival, uh, but one of the jazz festival touring companies with Russell Malone playing guitar and uh, Regina Carter on the violin. What um, a great show that was. Yeah, they, they came through town, and we brought a group of PMAX students over to hear the sound check. And then Russell Malone in particular brought several of the kids up onto the stage who were guitar players and put them up on his stool and handed them his guitar and said, play for me. Yeah, And there's this phenomenal photograph that you took of a young PMAX student, Nico, who was probably nine years old at the time, um, playing Russell Malone's guitar with Russell looking on with a big smile on his face that ended up hanging in the walls of the loft. How early was that in your process of doing that? Well, that must that was pretty early. I think that was in the 2009 yeah. uh, nine period. And what, what a amazing moment that was. That partnership, I can't tell yeah. you how meaningful that partnership has been for PMAC and for our students over the years. Um, what Patty Lynch and her team over there at the Music Hall do for us with the Explore and Learn partnership is amazing. And and your photography just captured, you know, they say a picture's worth a thousand words, that cliche. It captures everything that that means in that one photograph. Yeah, well, you know, if you can imagine uh, what a what a, a chore it is for me to have to photograph <laughs> yeah. the Music Hall, you know, <laughs> it's actually this amazing, amazing uh, privilege because, you know, the one of the, uh, core pieces of advice that you get from good photographers when you ask them, you know, how do I take good pictures? And they say, well, you know, the 
best way to take interesting pictures is to stand in front of interesting things with a camera. Yep. yep. And, you know, if you're there and you actually have the opportunity to be in a context where magic is happening visually, then you have a much better chance of taking a, taking a great picture than if you if you're sort of stuck where nothing's happening. And and people can still take great pictures where there's yeah. without that help, but it's a lot easier. And you know, I found myself standing there with a camera in my hand, and here's Nico picks up the guitar, yeah, and he's you know a little taller than my knees you know yep, he's, yep. He, he, okay he was he was maybe three and a half feet tall but you know this little kid and he wailed he oh he's was, an amazing guitar player he yeah was, he was incredible and you know you could see russell malone's doing this oh yeah here's another little kid and i'm gonna yep. show my guitar and the look on his face the went, second wow. nico starts playing was just beautiful it, it was transformative yeah. and and i had a camera i was lucky enough to be there and have a camera yeah. in my hand and so that was that was a lot. And in fact, the biggest challenge of that uh, photo shoot was picking the one to put on the wall because yep. there were so many c- cool expressions. And of course, he, as a guitarist, is also, he just has an amazingly expressive face. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. I, he's, after he's, that, I went to see him in New York, too. He's such a wonderful player. Yeah, yeah. So that was that, that was a great opportunity. And, and that, that, that was really fun because the core idea that Patricia Lynch had was... We want to get the performers right before they step on stage. Mm-hmm. So we actually set up a little extra lighting in the wings. Uh-huh. And we took a bunch of the pictures where just when they were sort of centering themselves. And it, and it was a tricky thing because you don't want to be obtrusive at all. Uh-huh. So I was sort of a, I'd have to establish a rapport with the performer uh-huh. and get them to figure it out, to basically forget that I was there. Mm-hmm. And let me take the picture, uh, and and we got some really you know fun pictures. Uh, some performers were like, okay, well, just do it, but don't bother me. Mm-hmm. And and others were uh, very aware of me, yep. and and uh, introducing me to people, and uh-huh. you know, well, get this, get this. It was yeah, interacting like with the photographer, yeah. yeah, yeah. So so it was really really kind of a thrill. Um, so, so is that one of those moments that you look back on your life and say, this changed the direction of what I was going to do in the years that followed having that experience? Um, or, or do you think you had already made the decision before you um, approached the music hall about being a part of this project that the photography was a really strong direction that you were going in? No, I would say that I had no idea yeah. that what impact it would have. Uh, when I was doing that shoot, I described myself as retired. Uh-huh. And I was in denial uh-huh. about not, you know, I think yeah. I, I continued to describe myself as retired while I very quickly evolved to working 40 to 60 hours a week doing photography. Yes. And and what I what I f- d- decided pretty early in this was as as more people saw my work and asked me to do shooting for them, was that uh, it wouldn't be fair to people who were in the area who were trying to make their living as photographers for me to do it for free mm-hmm. and take work away from them. Yeah. So I said, okay, well, if I'm going to do this, I, I better compete honestly and I better charge mm-hmm. you know, for my uh, commercial work. And even for like my relationship with the Music Hall, my relationship with Strawberry Bank, it's all professional. It's... Mm-hmm. it's, it's um, it's not volunteer work. Mm-hmm. It's, it's actually a commercial relationship that we have, and um, it's it's a, it's wonderful. Um, but yeah, I never I never intended to be back working full time. Mm-hmm. But I'm having a very good time. That's I fantastic. just love what I do, and of course the whole you know back to the technology part of it. Uh, I got very excited about what was happening in the drone world. Mm-hmm. As, a, as a photography yep. tool uh, several years ago. And one of the things that I loved about that was its similarity to the very early personal computer world. Because uh, there was a time really back in the early Apple days and, and mm-hmm. before the Apple, uh, as an example, the Apple One did not come with a keyboard. Yep. Right? If you want, oh, you want a keyboard or you want a, you want a screen. And... and and, and you had to cobble things together as mm-hmm. a hobbyist, and you had to dig in deep enough. 
it was sort of like the makerspace movement today. Yeah. You know, you you just have to be willing to put stuff together and and figure it out. Mm-hmm. And until a couple of years ago, the drone world was like that too. You ha- and it mm-hmm. involved you had to know about software and you had to be able to decide which particular firmware you were going to put into your um, controller and yep. you had to buy a lot of stuff and put it together and I just loved that. You gravitate right towards that because of your experience. Yeah, I was like I can do this. Yeah. You know, I'm old, but I can do this yep. and and then what it's going to allow me to do is take a GoPro and put it up in the air yep. and take pictures from 40 feet above the ground and mm-hmm. the other thing is I'm short. <laughs> you know, and 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 I'm I, I always am holding up my camera trying to get that slightly better yep. perspective. There are some other photographers in town who are quite tall. But they're not going to get a 40 feet high perspective. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, see, I, th- I think it's it's kind of like because they were never quite as challenged as yeah, I was, yeah. they never felt the need. Oh, yeah, to, I hear that. Uh, so, you know, I just took that one giant leap yeah. and and ended up in the air and uh, – have never looked back, and 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 that world has changed as quickly as the personal computer yes. world changed back in the '80s, and and so you know every year I get one or two new models of drones as they come out and and re, and, and get rid of the older ones, and uh, I just love seeing what can be done with that. Well, you know, in a recent conversation with Ben Anderson from Prescott Park Arts Festival, your name came up because. Um, he was commenting on how your drone photography of their shows there has allowed them to take a photograph and start checking off and actually do a head count yes. and say how many people are in the park because there's these wildly divergent you know, estimates of how many people are showing up at Prescott Park on a given night. And through the technology of the drone and your photography, Ben and his crew can take a photograph and say, this is how many people are in this area of the park. This is how many people are in this area of the park and, and map it out and show what realistically is actually happening in the park, which I think has been powerful for them. You know, and I love that the, the wide variety of uses that you can put this to that. And it's, it's very valuable to them, you know, to actually be able to get an accurate count uh, they also used one of my aerial images as the cover for the chocolate that they sell. Oh, yeah. I, I, I don't know if it's this year. The but Golden Ticket Chocolate. A couple of years ago, it was like the Golden Ticket Chocolate, yeah. and that was one of my aerial images uh-huh. on the cover. And it was about you know three inches long. And, yeah. and then... Does Lint supply that chocolate? I, we I, should, I think it is. Hopefully, I, I'm giving the right sponsor credit for that. I, I, I think so. <laughs> and then... That same image is about to be uh, produced in an 80-inch wide acrylic print. Wow! That's going up in a in a uh, an office space, a professional office space that a lot of people are going to be walking through in Portsmouth, and I can't quite that's okay reveal where that's going to be. But but you know to to go from the very utilitarian but valuable uh, counting attendance figures uh-huh. to Having a beautiful image that can be used uh, in in a in a public space mm-hmm. uh, for aesthetic persons uh, for aesthetic reasons, and then also sell chocolate. I mean, you know, what more could a perf- could yeah. a photographer want? Well, I tell you, I was first I was first introduced to you through your perf- live performance art um, photography at the music hall and what you do at the music hall. With that, I've seen your amazing landscape photographs that you've done of throughout Portsmouth, Market Square, other places where you've done photos, uh, photographed the landscape to, to great effect. Um, I've seen some of your um, wonderful photography of real estate throughout the area that you've done, um, and and now a lot of your drone photography. In fact, I think I participated. I was in one of your drone photo shoots. Uh, early on at 3S Art Space, where they had the, everyone that was supporting 3S Art Space <laughs> out in front of the building. Um, so I'm really excited um, for our students and families and anyone in the community who comes out to hear you at the West End Master Series and hear about all the different things that you do in photography. But it's all from a digital perspective also. I think that's important to mention. Uh, do you do any film photography, or is it all digital? No, I don't, I don't do any film. I did film in high school. Uh-huh. And I, and I do know what dark rooms smell yep. like, yep. and and I have a great respect for people who still use uh, traditional processes. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a trustee at the New Hampshire Institute of Art, 
and uh, try to be involved with the photography program there as much as I can. Mm-hmm. And and there they teach all the traditional yeah. processes, and I, I think that's really good for grounding. Um, but at this point, ju- just to circle back a little bit, yep. the, the work I did in computer science as an image processing person uh, led in in one of the paths uh, to uh, one of my companies being purchased by Adobe. Mm-hmm. And I have been involved in the software used to process digital photographs Wonderful. since the, uh, the creation of the JPEG standard, mm-hmm. uh, which my company was involved in. It was a consortium mm-hmm. that came together and said, we need a standard for, for images. And I was on the review committee for uh-huh. the JPEG. So that's uh-huh. how, again, oh, wow. that's how old I am and that's how long <laughs> I've been involved. Well, with. luckily, it wasn't that long ago. You know, I mean, it feels it like a long decades, time. Russ. Yeah. It was decades, Russ. It was decades ago. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a long time ago. So, um, so you know, I've been playing with JPEGs since before they were wow. really uh, like a standard. Uh-huh. And uh, I've been, I was a very early beta tester for uh, Photoshop and uh, for other image processing software. Uh-huh. So it's very natural for me to be working in the digital world. And I still will find myself in a situation where I might say, you know, I need to do something and I'm going to write some uh-huh. software to do it. Mm-hmm. And and that's kind of fun too. Although mm-hmm. I have to say to myself, okay, is this really the best use of your time? Or yep, you could just look on YouTube and find a video. They'll teach you how to do <laughs> it. You know, because there's so much great stuff on there. Oh yeah, yeah. But uh, but it, but it's it's a very natural progression. Be, just mm-hmm. because I was so involved in creating the tools and being friends with the people who were creating the tools, uh, that using them now is is very natural to me. And and I. There are things you can do digitally that fairly easily that you really can't do with film. Yep. Uh, and that's the way my mind works. Yep. So it's 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 a it's a very good fit for my own style. That's the other the was. other thing is that I'm an editor. You know, I mm-hmm. I, I, I iterate and iterate and yep. so I so I love to be able to adjust things and mm-hmm. film isn't that forgiving. Mm-hmm. Um I have a question that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast and I I your question, your answer will be no less unique than anyone else, but also because of your unique path of how you got to become a photographer and and became a full time photographer later in life after all these other life experiences that you went through. Um, I've been asking people what advice they would give a young person who's thinking about embarking on a college degree and career in the arts. So, um, you know. What would you say to someone who's a middle schooler or a high schooler who's really connecting with photography and um, is considering pursuing photography as, um, you know, for their life, for going to school for it, uh, going to school for art, becoming a photographer? Um, do you have any advice that you would give to a young person, maybe advice that you wish you had heard earlier in your life, um, but anything that you would say to someone who's thinking about pursuing that? I'd say go for it. <laughs> That's yeah, great advice. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Um, and the question is how how to yep. go how to go for it. So, uh, I th- I think that very few people these days, when they're in junior high uh, or even in college, know where their life's going to go. Yeah, right. It's a journey. It's a journey. And uh, you know, a couple of things that I wish that I knew when I was younger. Uh, I, I wish that I had been more willing to go out and talk to people who already did things that I thought I wanted to do. I think that, it, you know, if you want to be a photojournalist, uh, the the sooner you can connect with photojournalists, the more prepared you're going to be to know mm-hmm. how to become a great photojournalist. And also, the sooner you'll find out if you actually don't want to be a, fo- a photojournalist. Mm-hmm. And the the thing that... I know now that I didn't know then is that most people like to help others mm-hmm. if the request is genuine and it's not uh, abusive or you know excessive. And so you know if if, if a younger person comes to to an older person and says you know you do something that I think I might want to do and you seem to do it really well and you know can I get your life story? 
I, th- I think a lot of people respond well to that, mm-hmm. and I think that's just so useful. And it also helps you create a relationship where you can then get advice. You know, yeah. On a, so you, um, if you're if you're struggling with, or you even have an idea and you just want to get feedback. Well, uh, this goes back to your picking up the phone and calling Bill Gates. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's. I mean, whether it's an art or it's other things, and I just unplugged your headphones. Sorry about that. That's okay. <laughs> We're it's... reaching the end of the interview anyway. There are always technical issues. Yeah. Of course, I'd have the technical issue with the person who has the most experience with technical issues. Um, but that's that's great advice. You know, it, it does. And I often find that the advice that people give circles around to their experience and their life experience in a way. So that's that's really good advice for a young student. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. The, and, and then the other thing is cruise ships. I would just mention cruise ships. Cruise so, ships? Cruise ships, yeah. Because... <laughs> Which now, musicians, a, I know, are very well connected to cruise ships. Photographers, too, I guess. You know, I think about it. I did go on a cruise years ago with our kids when they were young, and some of the photos of my children that I value the most were taken by cruise ship photographers. Yeah, and, you know, that's kind of dying, I, I have yeah. to say, uh, because so many, everybody's got, uh, you know, a, a pretty good camera in their yep, cell phone that's right. or better. Uh, so, you know, more seriously, the thing about pursuing a career as a photographer is that it's um it's very difficult to distinguish yourself because mm-hmm. basically everybody can take a pretty good photo these days uh with a cell phone mm-hmm. or a point and shoot camera so you have to figure out you know what is it about photography it's not really just getting the good picture it's uh it's it's having an idea having a job uh, but there are so many different ways that that you can uh, make a living as a photographer. Yep. Um, but the other the other thing I wanted to say about you know someone who's thinking about going into college and mm-hmm. in the creative field in general is that uh, there's there's a very strong um, uh, emphasis being placed on STEM these yes. days, uh, w- which tends to devalue the arts and creativity and design Mm -hmm. and i don't think it intentionally does that but when you're when you emphasize one thing you de-emphasize something else just because you have only so much so much resource to to or or time to to put into something and you know as someone who has a creative background but who spent 30 years in technology, either as an individual contributor or managing technology development teams, mm-hmm. and doing it in Silicon Valley, I can tell you that by far the most valued employees and the most uh, engaged and interesting people and happy people that I met were the people who not only brought technical skills to their job, but who had uh, developed their creative uh, skills mm-hmm. and their ability to work in teams and together create something great. Yep. And I think that a liberal arts education, a an arts-oriented education is a great way to develop those skills mm-hmm. so so that you know if you you may go and major in art or music and you may find a career doing that, but you may also find a career where the skills you learned yes. are going to make you a very valuable contributor um, or even able to create your own job and be an entrepreneur. Yes. Uh, and, and by the way, that's another thing I wish I'd learned back in college. It never occurred to me in college that I could be an entrepreneur. Really? Wow. You know, the, yeah. My whole mindset was get a job. Get a job, yeah. Get a, not make a job. And I, and I think that that's not news to so many kids well, that's now. That's a but big it's, deal in the culture today, though, yeah. that uh, we've really become a get-a-job culture um, in recent years because of the challenges with employment in our country over the past decade that you hear more and more the importance placed on colleges that can place students in jobs immediately when they graduate. It's about getting the job. It's not about teaching students how to become entrepreneurs necessarily. Um, so it is a good lesson and a, an yeah. important thing to reiterate to people that entrepreneurship is an, a path and a valid path. 
I, yeah, I think it's a good. It's fine if you can get a job early and yep. learn some stuff on other someone else's dime. Yes, especially make some mistakes before they're you know catastrophic mm-hmm. to your own financial career. But you know, as early as you can, yeah. if if you're so inclined, the oppor- the idea that you can go out and make a career for yourself, and and there's so many ways to do that these days. I don't know if you know the. Uh, the vlogger Casey Neistat. No, I don't. Oh, you you must. I'll check you, it out. You must. Five point eight million subscribers uh, has just done phenomenal work. And mm-hmm. one of the things that he said when he won, you know, Vlogger of the Year or mm-hmm. GQ Internet Man of the Year, which two things that he did in the last year. Uh huh. He said he, what he loved about YouTube was that when he clicks the upload button to upload one of his episodes it's the same upload button that everybody else can click mm-hmm. and he uploads these 10 minute videos yep. and he has anyone can do over it. 5 million subscribers yep. and yep. and through AdSense he can mm-hmm. you know actually get income from mm-hmm. that uh, now he's you know he's he's kind of extraordinary we can't all be that but Everybody can upload something yep. to YouTube. It's it's pretty inspiring, I think. It's amazing times we're in. Yeah. So, well, I look forward to your talk in January 2017 here at PMAC. But thank you for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate spending some time with you and learning some new stuff that I didn't even know about you. So this is wonderful. Well, it's my pleasure. You do great work, and it's always uh, really fun to sit down and talk to you. Thanks. Thank you for joining us today on our very first episode of Sound and Color, the PMAC podcast. Sound and Color is produced by Pip Clues with executive producer Jennifer Minacucci. It is a production of the Portsmouth Music and Arts Center, a 501c3 nonprofit community music and visual arts school located in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and supported by many community members and donors. The music that you heard on today's podcast, The Saddest of All Keys by PMAC faculty member Mike Effenberger and performed by the PMAC Jazz faculty, is available on the PMAC Jazz Night 2013 CD. And for more information, you can check that out on the PMAC website, www.pmaconline.org. Be sure to subscribe to Sound and Color on iTunes and give us a review. It'll help us with our ratings on iTunes. I'm your host, Russ Grazier, and I'd like to thank you for joining us today.